0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, MOD documents dumped by a bus stop. How did such a security blunder happen?
1: It's not a kind of add-on. It's not something you do when you're not watching the football or going on holiday. Keeping us secure is the most important single one of them.
0: As Britain toughens up its relations with China, are we getting this vital relationship right?
2: It's pretty impossible to say anything that is critical there at the moment, from soft authoritarianism to what we have now, which is hard authoritarianism.
0: And forces athlete Pete Reed on his battle to walk again.
2: I don't want to do down
3: Olympic gold medals. They're really cool, but they don't actually matter. Being able to hug somebody without falling out of your chair and falling over and flopping, the the, the things that do matter in life.
0: It hasn't been the best week for the Ministry of Defence. Its senior leaders were ordered to self-isolate after the Chief of the Defence Staff tested positive for coronavirus just as details emerged of highly sensitive documents found dumped by a bus stop in Kent. Inside discussions on a potential future role for Britain in Afghanistan and how Russia might have reacted to HMS defenders' passage through waters close to Ukraine. An investigation is underway. U.S. National Security Analyst Ari Aramesh.
3: Oops. That was the first thought that came to my mind. How do you drop a package of sensitive classified information at a bus stop in Kent? In terms of the broader transatlantic alliance and our cooperation with the United Kingdom, uh, I don't think it's going to do much damage. Uh, this is not something that's going to land on the president's desk. we got bigger fish to fry.
0: But that doesn't mean it isn't embarrassing and raises some important questions. Professor Anthony Gleese is an expert on security at Buckingham University. He told me he's not convinced by the official explanation of how those documents ended up by a bus stop.
1: The way in which the story is being told by uh, Whitehall is that these papers were on the desk of a very senior Official in the Ministry of Defence, he realised that he had mislaid them and they then turned up at a bus stop in Kent. Of course, for people like me, the issue is, how did they get from the official's desk to a bus stop in Kent? We are invited to believe, I think, that maybe the official took them home for the weekend. And left them. I think that is a very, very doubtful uh, version to put to the public. For one thing, you rarely take uh, secret UK eyes only documents out of the office. If you were to do that, uh, it would be in a special briefcase that would be manacled to your wrist, precisely in order to prevent this kind of thing. And frankly, I'm not sure that a senior. Ministry of Defence official goes home by bus. So what concerns us is what happened when the papers left the Ministry of Defence before they got to the bus stop and were found.
0: How easily could they have ended up in the hands of a foreign power, do you think?
1: Oh, very easily, indeed, I would say, do we know the full story? It's why we should know the full story. We must suspect that a foreign power was involved. Indeed, Mr Quinn, the minister involved, told Parliament that espionage could certainly not be ruled out. And I would say the idea that they were left there by mistake may be true, but it is also equally possible, and some might argue more possible, that they were actually left there on purpose to kind of rub our noses in it. And this is certainly what happened when the Russian GRU attacked Sergei Skripal in Salisbury. People will probably remember. uh, When they'd finished with the Novichok bottles, they just left them there. One of them tragically killed Dawn Sturgis um, from Salisbury. They leave the evidence there. It kind of adds insult to injury and I would not be surprised if that were not the case here.
0: Well, this, of course, came on top of the release of CCTV footage from inside the office of the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, which itself has pretty significant security implications.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think MI5 uh, really had a double whammy those two days and they, they will have been reeling. It was a security camera placed in that bit of the office, but had been turned round instead of monitoring an emergency exit over a balcony it had been turned round so that too is of the gravest concern whoever turned that camera and whoever passed the video to the sun newspaper, that would be a person of considerable interest to our security service.
0: Now, if there are lessons to be learned from both of these incidents, how confident are you that they will be?
1: I think there may be a tendency not to think these matters are as important as they should be. You know, President Trump famously, when told that uh, the Russians had uh, attacked the UK in Salisbury said, well, you know, so what? That's what spies do. They knock each other off. (laughs) That's a kind of jokey way of looking at what is our national security. But the bottom line for us is we send our servicemen out to fight and get killed to protect our values and to protect the security of our realm. And until everybody in government understands It's not a kind of add-on. It's not something you do when you're not watching the football or going on holiday, but that it is the prime duty of government. Government have very few prime duties, as Margaret Thatcher so rightly said, but keeping us secure is the most important single one of them.
0: Professor Anthony Glees there. Well, with me through this week's programme is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clarke. Michael, what do you make of Anthony Glees' suggestion those papers could have been dumped by the roadside by agents of a foreign power, almost as a form of ridicule?
4: Well, uh, you have to keep all possibilities open uh, when you're trying to work out what has happened here. But I must admit, I'm, I'm more of a akin to the cock-up theory of politics than the conspiracy theory. I mean, certainly these documents look as if they have been stolen. My guess is that somebody took them home, which they shouldn't have been doing, and either lost them or poss- more likely had something stolen, car broken into or a briefcase stolen or something like that, and that whoever stole them then saw the papers and dumped them. The idea of a foreign power doing this is a bit hard to imagine because even if the papers have been copied and then dumped, that is, is leaving behind a whole series of useful things that a foreign power would want to have. A foreign power would want to have the original documents. The actual documents carry lots of signatures elements with them. So any sensible intelligence organisation would want the originals back so they could see exactly how the MOD is producing its documents, if only so that they'll know the genuine article at some future time when somebody gives them some documents and they say, oh yes, is it the same sort of paper? Are they using the same sort of printers? Are they using the same sort of formatting? That would be useful. Any foreign agent who got hold of 50 pages and then dumped them isn't a very good foreign agent. They'd want those back at their own security ministry.
0: in terms of the content, the papers discuss policy on Afghanistan, acutely sensitive amid reports the head of the US mission is warning the country could soon slide into civil war.
4: Yes, I mean, that's a sensitive matter for sure, because the Americans are clearly asking us to stay in some way in Afghanistan, in some remote way, using special forces or whatever. General Austin Miller has been saying that in public for a few days now, that it, you know, the fact that it turned up in these papers is no surprise, really, although that was the most sensitive of them. But he's been saying um, quite recently, well, we're, we're in danger of sliding into civil war if we, the West, don't do something about it.
0: And just on another subject, how good an idea was it to gather all the most senior military figures in the UK in the same room during the third wave of the pandemic?
4: <laughs> yes, not a very good idea. I mean, it's very hard to, to avoid because the chiefs need to speak to each other. And the MOD is doing some very important things at the moment. I mean, it's the one part of government that is taking the integrated review really seriously and getting on with it. And you've got to to do that by people talking together face-to-face. But clearly, the protocols that would normally apply sound as if they were a bit too relaxed, as they're bound to be amongst colleagues. And these sort of things happen. But I must admit, it's, it's not a big story, but it's one of those... It's, it's a minor hole in the head, which the MOD really doesn't want at the moment.
0: Now, it's nine years since three people died after two RAF tornadoes crashed in Scotland. Now a former Air Force technician is hoping his campaign for a public inquiry into those deaths might finally succeed. David Sybils McCann has more.
5: It was one of RAF Lossiemouth's darkest days. Flight Lieutenant Huell Poole, Flight Lieutenant Adam Sanders and Squadron Leader Samuel Bailey were involved in a tornado collision over the Murray Firth on the 3rd of July 2012. The tragedy caused a great deal of shock and grief in both the military and civilian communities in the area. James Jones served in the RAF himself for almost 20 years. He's not satisfied with the investigation into the deaths of the servicemen and is campaigning for a fresh public probe into the incident.
6: In England, or even when people come back from Afghanistan and have been killed, they have there is a, a service inquiry. And after that service inquiry, which covers the technical aspects of, of why the death occurred, there's usually there's an inquest. And up in Scotland, we don't have inquests, we have fatal accident inquiries. So everyone expected to have to just follow suit.
5: But there was to be no fatal accident inquiry, as the deaths of military personnel in Scotland were not eligible for investigation due to their status as a Crown appointee rather than an employee of the Ministry of Defence.
6: When I asked about when this fatal accident inquiry would take place, it came as a bit of a shock when I was told that the people who died were not covered by the Act.
5: 19 contributory factors, including a failure to fit collision warning system to the tornadoes led to the incident, according to the Military Aviation Authority inquiry. But Mr Jones says it shouldn't be up to the Ministry of Defence to investigate itself and a public inquiry by a civilian authority like the Crown Office is needed. He secured a change in the law in 2017. Ensuring the deaths of all personnel in Scotland would be subject to an inquiry in future.
6: What people want is a judicial inquiry, which means that there's a judge in charge of it. It's a judicial inquiry. It's open inquiry. It's open to the public. It's open to the families. People can ask, cross-examine. That doesn't happen with a, a service inquiry. That's what people want, openness, transparency. And someone said, they probably then say, right, OK, these were the mistakes that were made, and this is what we needed to do to correct them.
5: MP for Murray, Douglas Ross, agrees a fresh investigation is long overdue. Well, it would be
1: closure. It would allow us to to move on. It would allow the families eh, to crucially get the answers they have been calling for and campaigning for for many years. And I think it would make a big difference to the community to have a a final resolution on this matter. Both the service community and the wider Murray community were hit very hard when this accident occurred back in 2012. You know, there was family and, and friends of the crew in the, the local community it had a huge impact both within and out with the wire and that's why I think it's important for everyone in Murray that we can see progress with this.
5: Scotland's top law officer James Wolfe QC has stepped down as Lord Advocate and was replaced by Dorothy Bain QC. Now Mr Jones hopes his replacement will rethink the request.
6: Clearly these people died in a work related accident and therefore they deserve the same treatment as any civilian counterpart.
5: The Crown Office says it's satisfied with the investigation into the incident. A spokesperson said, The circumstances of this crash and loss of life have been fully investigated and no new material or information has been presented that changes the decision not to hold an FAI. But the former RAF technician is determined to carry on with his campaign and is vowing to fight on to ensure a fresh investigation into the tragedy is held.
0: David civils mccann with that report. This is Zitrap. Zitrap. The sounds of a vast event in Beijing, marking the centenary of China's Communist Party. A hundred years ago, they met in secret at a girls' school in Shanghai. Well, now they command what's set to be the world's largest economy. Just six years ago, Chinese Premier Xi Jinping said he wanted Britain to be China's best friend in the West. Now, he's warned, foreign powers will get their heads bashed if they try to bully the nation. So what sort of relationship should Britain be aiming for? I spoke to Professor Rana Mitter, an expert on the history and politics of modern China at Oxford University. He told me there are three key elements in the relationship between China and the UK.
2: On the UK side, uh, concern about the economy, economic value, concern about security, particularly military issues, and concern about values. And what I'd say is that that latter factor, which includes issues like human rights, was frankly pretty downplayed five or six years ago during the period of the brief, what was known as the the golden era of China-UK relations. Really, the story then was all about getting investment in the British economy, very little about any security issues, very little about human rights. That's completely shifted, particularly in the last year. And the primary reasons I'd say are the COVID pandemic, which has made people look uh, very warily at relations with uh, China because of concerns about the virus, along with concerns about uh, telecoms and whether Chinese equipment in that in Britain is problematic. And of course, the human rights issues surrounding the suppression of freedoms in Hong Kong And of course, the uh, placement of, as far as we can tell, many, many thousands of Uyghur Chinese in re-education camps. So all of those factors have come together in a way that just wasn't the case six or seven years ago.
0: And regarding those human rights issues you mentioned, Beijing must have realised the West would speak out.
2: Well, I think Beijing realised that something would be said. But I think there has been surprised about both how loud And how concerted the pushback against China's human rights issues on Hong Kong and Xinjiang have been. The level and coordination of the pushback, including between the UK, EU, United States and other Western powers, that I think has surprised them and in some ways I think rather disconcerted them.
0: And why has there been this pushback now?
2: I think it's a combination of things. One element that I would say is probably truer now than it was under President Trump is that President Biden... I think genuinely does have a major concern on these human rights issues. But there's a bigger issue, of course, and that is the growing security competition between China and the Western world. On a whole variety of issues, scientific developments, which could have military applications, Artificial intelligence, quantum computing. These are things where China is making, as far as we can tell, really quite significant strides and the West wants to make sure that it's not left behind. In terms of international influence, China is using its Belt and Road Initiative, big infrastructure and investment program that stretches all the way from East Africa, where China now has a naval base, so do many Western powers, including the US, but uh, China certainly does have one uh, there, to places like Pakistan, to places like Southeast Asia. All of that suggests that China is seeking a wider global footprint, and that's making a lot of Western powers more determined to make sure that China doesn't get the upper hand in terms of influence in those areas.
0: China, as you say, has opened up economically, but the West is always bumping up against the reality of a one-party state that cracks down hard on dissent, and that only seems to have intensified under Xi Jinping.
2: That's correct. In fact, in some ways, ten years ago, the China that existed in the last years of President uh, Hu Jintao, his predecessor, um, was of course an authoritarian state, but some aspects of it actually were quite recognisable to. Um, you Western audiences, there was a certain amount of quite feisty investigative journalism by newspapers in China. Social media was really quite lively about 10 years ago, including a lot of criticism of the government, uh, in fact. And there was a burgeoning civil society, little groups that worked on everything from the environment to to women's rights. Uh, These were actually sort of being tacitly encouraged to, to grow up, to take some of the burden off the state. That's pretty much all gone into reverse gear in the last 10 years, very much under the influence of Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese president and general secretary of the party. Civil society is very, very shrunken. Uh, the press has been explicitly told that it's there to serve the party, not to serve you know freedom of thought or whatever else you th- might think the press is, is about. And social media is still lively when it's talking about anything from celebrity gossip to, to certain social policies. But in terms of high-level politics, really, it's pretty impossible to say anything that is critical there at the moment, so yeah, there's been a definite change of uh, of tone from what one political scientist, David Shambaugh, has called soft authoritarianism to what we have now which is hard authoritarianism.
0: And NATO has warned of the systemic challenges of China, warning it does not share our values. China in turn warned it wouldn't sit by and do nothing. As the West pays more attention to the Indo-Pacific, how do you think China will respond?
2: I think we're beginning to see a real pushback from China. And I think in understanding what China will do and also what the West might want to do, it's important to differentiate a couple of things. One is the way that China operates within its own borders. Now, I suspect that you know many of us observe from the West are very disturbed by, for instance, what's happening in Hong Kong and would want to speak out strongly, saying that we, we find it disturbing. But of course, that is happening within China's own territories, which are you know not disputed by anyone. The sovereignty in Hong Kong went back in 1997. It's not coming back. That's different from what China does in the outside world. So when we're thinking about issues such as cyber war, when we're thinking about issues such as the militarization of uh, natural and artificial islands in the South China Sea. And of course the new aircraft carrier, Queen Elizabeth is going to be uh, passing at least through some of those waters, it seems in in the near future. That's much more about what the world wants to say about China beyond its own boundaries. So I think those are two separate conversations. They're both worth having, and the one about China's internal values I think absolutely is important, but we have to also understand that it is somewhat separate from the idea of China's security issues in the wider world, where we have interests as well, which are separate from the question of values.
0: And there were people at the top of the Trump administration who openly said some kind of military conflict with China was inevitable. How likely is it that things could deteriorate further?
2: I think the likelihood of an all out military conflict is still quite low because all sides know that the outbreak of such a war in, uh, let's say, the Western Pacific between China and the the power of the United States there would quickly escalate in all sorts of ways. The United States has uh, treaty allies such as Japan and uh, it has uh, troops in South Korea uh, and other uh, countries in the region. And I think none of them want to be pulled into that sort of conflict. China also knows that while it has been building up its military presence in all sorts of ways, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, Navy in particular, has really had very significant funding in the last decade or so and now has blue water capacity not just in the Pacific but in the indian ocean so yes all of that is growing but at the same time i think chinese policymakers, people doing war gaming in beijing while they feel more and more confident would still i think feel very wary very cautious about pitting their own forces and it is in the end just china's forces against what could be a constellation of forces including the quad that's australia india japan the united states as i mentioned troops in south korea and elsewhere a whole panoply of different actors. People sometimes talk about, you know, would the Russians help the Chinese? And they are doing uh, joint exercises together, both naval and uh, land-based. But at the same time, my take would be that Moscow likes to have Beijing at its back, but the trust between the two sides is not that deep. And if, you know, the, the people in Beijing were phoning up Moscow and saying, will you help us actually fight a war against the United States? I don't think they would get a very positive answer.
0: Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford University there. Well, let's pick that up with Michael Clark. In his centenary speech, Xi Jinping warned against sanctimonious preaching and said China had an unshakable commitment to unification with Taiwan.
4: Yes. I mean, they say this all the time. You, you know, when, when you're dealing with any Chinese diplomats, and I've, I've had this experience myself, you can talk to them very straightforwardly about lots of things. As soon as you mention Taiwan, they genuinely, genuinely get angry they, they really feel it. They start to thump the table. It, it is something that goes very deep into Chinese sensibilities. The, the realities haven't really changed very much, except that Xi Jinping, who may be there now for, well, indefinitely, but say he's going to be there for another 20 years, probably assumes that he has to sort out the Taiwan situation. He has to solve it before he steps down or dies, because it's his issue. And so I think, you know, the chance of, of an invasion of Taiwan is not all that high, but it's been, let's say, a 5% chance for many years. It's probably now a 25% or a 30% chance, which is considerably greater. But it's, it's not that we're likely to see a, a, an invasion of Taiwan. But if anything is to happen, it's going to happen a bit sooner rather than later.
0: Michael, stay with us. Donald Rumsfeld, who died this week at the age of 88, was the youngest man to be appointed U.S. Secretary of Defense. He was also the oldest. He was appointed in 1975 by President Gerald Ford and again by George W. Bush in 2001. The following year, as the U.S. pushed for military action against Saddam Hussein, he was asked about the lack of evidence linking Iraq to a number of extremist groups. Reports that say that, that, that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Unforgettable for a quote that was. Professor Michael Clark, That there's no doubt Rumsfeld was one of the chief architects of the war in Iraq, but despite all the problems, he often seemed reluctant to admit anything went wrong.
4: Yes, he was not a man who was plagued by self-doubt very much. And he found his moment in the neocon era. They felt that democracy, Western democracy, will win. It will win out. And therefore, we shouldn't actually fight all-out wars. We should fight proxy wars. We should get people to fight for us, like the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan in 2001. And then, however difficult it is, stuff happens, said Rumsfeld, you know, democracy will win. But Colin Powell, I mean, you know, the the, uh, general who was much more thoughtful than Don Rumsfeld, he said there's an old fashioned problem that if you break it, you own it. And that was the issue. In Iraq, they broke it. But then they, they refused to own the results, and that's you know, we've seen a strategically very poor outcome as a result of that. But Rumsfeld, more than anyone else, I think, is the architect of the mess that Iraq got into because he intellectualised the idea that he didn't need to worry too much about what happened when the fighting stops.
0: Finally today, Lieutenant Commander Pete Reed is arguably the British force's greatest athlete. In a career spanning more than 15 years, he won three Olympic and five world rowing titles. But in 2018, he suffered a spinal stroke which left him paralysed from the waist down. He's about to end a grueling 18 months at the Defense Medical Rehabilitation Center in Leicestershire, aiming to walk again. And John Knighton's been to see Pete Reed to hear about his road to recovery.
7: The DMRC has been home to Pete Reed for more than 18 months. Here he's gone through all the highs and lows of a journey he never thought he'd have to make to learn to live with suffering a life-changing spinal stroke.
3: I was hoping I was hoping to get as much leg function back as possible, body function back. And I was, I was hoping to come out of it fulfilled, energised, with a purpose, and ready to integrate back into society. So I didn't know if that meant standing and walking again or running. But regardless of what we can get back physically, which I, I would hope would be maximum after everyone's efforts, it's just to have a purpose and a, and a plan going forward.
7: Pete won three Olympic titles and five world championships, but many think recovery and ultimately walking again would eclipse that.
3: I don't want to do down Olympic gold medals, they're really cool, but they don't actually matter. Being able to hug somebody without falling out of your chair and falling over and flopping. The, the, the things that do matter in life really do, like personal connections, other people, relationships, time, they matter, and that's what we're working on now. And it, it does eclipse my last chapter and all you have to do to avoid self-pity, to keep motivation high and to keep satisfaction there in your life and purpose and all of those things, all you have to do is be comfortable with being vulnerable and shifting your goals.
7: Each step he takes along the way is an achievement at the DMRC where the staff have worked tirelessly through the Covid-19 pandemic to help him and other patients.
3: Uh, walking last week with some they're called AFOs, um ankle foot orthotics. So some AFOs on and some stim, but walking just with the lightest touch of my left hand on one of the bars. So I needed the bar for sure and there were some bits helping me out, but it was it was a walk. Yeah, truly amazing. The question that everyone is asking and I've asked you is
7: already will Pete Reed walk again? And you have always said it might
3: happen. might happen. but
7: it is it's happening.
3: Yeah. Uh, bit by bit it is
7: happening.
3: It just takes an, an awfully long time. And and there are there are little dips, there are peaks and troughs along that, that tricky road. I can see it and it's worth working for. If it does happen or doesn't, I can live with it as long as we've done all the work. And, and that's exactly what we have been doing. It's not about whether or not we're walking, it's more of an attitude thing. I want to be pushing for those things um, in that chair, going on those trips and thinking, wow, that's... That's possible, and, and that's the, I think that's the strength of this place. You, you're living it with other people, and we're all military, so there's that, that mindset of you know, never give up. I think I'll walk again. Just It won't be the same, of course it won't, and it might be with some aids, but we're, we're doing it already, and, and we're in a process. It's amazing stuff.
7: His fiancée, Jeannie, has been a huge inspiration to Pete.
3: She's my reason why I do all this stuff, it's not, it's not really for me, it's not for the Navy, all these things are bonuses but whenever the going gets tough or whenever there's a little bit of a dip in training, rehab, life, I, I think of her and she, she deserves the, the best version of me.
7: So what will be the legacy of his time at Stanford Hall?
3: I'd like to come back and help work with some of the patients, especially the new spinal cord injuries coming in, who it can be a, a daunting place when you very first arrive. But how to get the most out of this place? I'd like to leave something as well for Stamford Hall. I took a bit earlier through, through 2020, through the, the bulk of the UK's COVID chapter, I was taking portraits of members of staff with my camera. And I'd like to leave something for the, the staff who worked through the COVID chapter. All of the portraits were in masks. And I'd like to leave that up on the wall. Um, but also I'd like to become a little bit part of the support team that helped the rehabbers come through a, a very very hard time but with the re- right attitude i think it can be a rewarding time and one that one that builds your character you can come out of this better than you went in
0: pete reed ending john knighton's report there and that's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Sitrep and at bfbs.com slash sitrep. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.